It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. The ongoing trade war between the world's two largest economies, the U.S. and China, is destabilizing global growth. Gita Gopinath is chief economist at the International Monetary Fund. She says another unsettling factor is uncertainty in Europe over Brexit. Still, there are signs of positivity in the world, like a growth streak in the U.S. This is a a delicate moment uh, with tremendous policy uncertainty, with markets and financial conditions that seem very easy. So the question is, what comes next? Can the trade war seriously derail economic growth? What's happening in the global economy? Gopinath, the IMF's first female chief economist, weighs in. Aspen Ideas to Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival. Last year, economic activity was accelerating in nearly all regions of the world. One year later, a lot has changed. While the U.S. experiences low unemployment and high consumer spending, emerging markets have struggled. Even America's healthy recovery is slowing, says IMF chief economist Gita Gopinath. Now, the first quarter of of 2019 was a bit off the charts in terms of 3.1% growth rate. Uh, And seeing the more more recent indicators, we don't expect that to continue going forward. So there's going to be a slowing down. If there's ever a time the world needs coordination, it's now. Can the IMF help global leaders find collaboration? And how will the IMF's new consideration of factors like climate change and gender change the way we see the global economy? Gopinath sits down with Jillian Tett, U.S. Editor-at-Large for the Financial Times. Their conversation was held June 27th, just before the G20 summit in Japan. Here's Tett. And I'm absolutely delighted to have a chance to chat to Gita um, for three reasons. Firstly, that, um, you know, working for the Financial Times, we are endlessly fascinated by economics and what's happening in the global economy. And right now, as we're going to discuss, it is indeed a very delicate moment, in many ways quite a confusing moment. So I look forward to having some light shed on that. Um, Secondly, it's a very interesting moment for the IMF because... If there was ever a time the world needs coordination, it's now. And yet we are at a moment where many global leaders are not looking terribly interested in collaboration and coordination, to put it politely. So I want to talk a bit about that, about what the IMF can do to try and bring the world together a bit or not. And last but not least, it's a very interesting moment to talk to you because... I started my career as a journalist 25 years ago working in the economics team for the FT. And I used to joke that I just wished I had one woman I could quote occasionally in my pieces. Um, Back then, there were no senior women in positions of power. And there were almost no female economists um, who were quotable. And yet here you are as chief economist, the first chief economist of the IMF who's a woman, Um, working under the management director, who is a woman, Christine Lagarde, and we are seeing a growing number of women in economics and in leadership positions. So I want to touch on that a bit towards the end if we have a chance. But let me start by asking you a bit about what's actually happening in the global economy. Because if you look at the markets right now, the world is kind of nuts. Bond markets are suggesting we're about to plunge into a recession, Um, We've almost got, you know, inverted yield curves. We've got negative rates. I mean, you know, $12.5 trillion of bonds right now 
are trading with negative nominal yields. I mean, that's extraordinary. And yet, if you look at the equity markets, it's, well, hey, everything's great. What do you think is happening? I believe the one factor that can explain both of those is monetary policy at this point. Uh, the fact that monetary policy is incredibly accommodative pretty much everywhere in the world, and especially in the large economies, means that everybody's expecting rate cuts. That would explain why bond deals are projected to be lower, and it would explain why the equity markets are, are booming. But you know, a point that you're making here is that if you look at uh, the real economic conditions, and if you look at investment, or if you look at international uh, trade, it gives you reason for pause. So 2018 basically ended poorly for most countries in the world. Uh, and the expectation was that growth would slow down in 2019 and there might be a recovery in 2020. Now, the first quarter of 2019 looked great for a few uh, large economies. The US looked like it was doing well. China was a surprise positive. Japan, surprise positive. Euro area, surprise positive. Uh, but if you look into the details of what drove that surprise positive, you can see that that momentum is not likely uh, to last. Uh, and on the other hand, because uh, the IMF, we care about the global economy, we pay attention to uh, emerging markets in developing countries too. If you look at emerging markets, there were a bunch of negative surprises, particularly in Latin America, uh, emerging uh, Asia, in the first quarter of, of 2019. So this is a, a delicate moment uh, with tremendous policy uncertainty. Uh, and like you said, with markets and financial conditions that seem very easy. So the question is, what comes next here? So what does come next? I mean, let's start with the trade war. How concerned are you that a trade war could seriously derail economic growth? This is uh, what we've, we've put out there as our number one risk to the global economy. Uh, where we are seeing weakness is in, this, in industrial production, in manufacturing, in investment, and all of this is, is very closely tied to trade and trade uncertainty, policies related to that. Now, if you think back in March, uh, we were in a situation where we were expecting a, a trade deal to happen between the U.S. and China. We thought Brexit was going to take care of itself and there was going to be a deal and, and things were possibly going to work out. Uh, nobody expected uh, tensions that came up, uh, came up with technology, uh, the, the threat of sanctions, uh, the threat of sanctions, the threat of tariffs on Mexico. And so all of that has happened in a very short period of time, and uh, that gives everybody a lot of pause to wait and think. So business sentiment has weakened, uh, and this can have a very negative effect on growth, given the fact that the world economy is not exactly fully settled at a very stable growth rate at this point. And do you think in that case that the central banks are right to be indicating there's time to cut rates further? And how much further can they go? I mean, does it worry you? You've got $12.5 trillion worth of bonds at negative yields? Monetary, uh, of, uh, monetary policymakers are staring at a couple of things. The first thing, of course, they're staring at is inflation, which is the number one variable in their mandate. Uh, and when they look at inflation, it looks weak. It's gotten weaker recently. Uh, and so they believe that they have, in their mandate, they're supposed to bring inflation back up to target, there are tremendous uncertainties with respect to global growth, so it's appropriate to have an accommodative stance. Now, that said, of course, the question is whether how many rate cuts does one need for it. That's going to be data-dependent and see what plays out. Uh, a lot of factors matter in that, uh, in, that, in that case. The markets are expecting several rate cuts. Uh, 
you know, whether that plays out, you know, it's, it's too early to make that, make that call at this point. Of course, I mean, President Trump has been saying, well, listen, the U.S. economy is different. You know, we are having a fantastic growth streak. Um, you know, there's quite a contrast right now between Europe and the U.S. and the numbers, or even if you look at the trajectory between China and the U.S. Do you think the U.S. growth rate right now or the growth trajectory is real, or is it just a sugar high? The U.S. growth uh, has, did benefit a lot from the fiscal stimulus that was put in place a couple of years ago. Uh, and given that the U.S. is a pretty closed economy in the sense that its growth depends a lot on internal demand, uh, the fiscal stimulus helps. Uh, and so the U.S. economy has been doing well. It's been recovering well. The unemployment rate is at a record low. Uh, so indeed, uh, the indicators look great. Now, the first quarter of, of 2019 was a bit off the charts in terms of 3.1% growth rate. Uh, and seeing the more kind of more recent indicators that we don't expect that to continue going forward. So there's going to be a slowing down. But it, but it is the case that the U.S. economy is doing better than uh, several other of the larger economies of the world. How much of a slowing down do you expect to see? I mean, could there be a recession before 2020? That is not in our baseline. Uh, we are not expecting a, a recession at this point. Uh, of course, we keep flagging that there are several downside risks, and it, everything matters, including what's going to happen in the next couple of days at G20, mm. uh, what's going to happen with tariffs, uh, with uh, trade tensions, not just with China, but with uh, the European Union. All of these factors do matter. But in our baseline, we're not putting in a, a, any such dire scenario. Um, so what do you expect to happen in the G20? I have no idea. <laughs> what would you... <laughs> I mean, I, I, the only, the, I know just as much as what you know, which is, in the, uh, which is uh, the, the, the suggestion that there might be a truce. Um, a truce. <laughs> a trade I think, yes, truce. I think the best case yeah. scenario is that there would be a truce. Uh, but again, there is so much coming out on a minute-to-minute basis uh, that it's, it's, just, it's just hard for me to say. What would you like to see? I would like to see uh, an agreement that rolls back uh, tariffs uh, and does so in a durable way, so there is not the sense that it might come back in a couple of months, uh, and that there is a sense that we are moving towards integration as opposed to disintegration in the world economy. Uh, and, of course, many things still need to be fixed with the global trading system. Uh, the institutions need uh, to do their own work, but uh, this particular strategy of tit-for-tat tariffs really ends up with uh, negatively impacting everybody. Do you expect or do you want them to talk about the currency system at all? Because your PhD was in capital flows and currencies. That's kind of in many ways been what the IMF did. It sort of talked a lot about capital flows. It looked at the global economy through that lens. And yet it's pretty remarkable how little discussion there's been about currency issues over the last couple of years. Um, and there doesn't appear to be any sense of any desire to have global coordination or discussion about this. Do you think it's time to put that back on the agenda? Currency discussions, I mean, actually, uh, our currency discussions have been, have been ongoing for a while. It's one of the products that the International Monetary Fund puts out uh, is what's called the External Stability Report, where we mm. look at con countries' currencies and we make a judgment call about whether it's overvalued or undervalued. Uh, so it's an important part of what we do. Uh, what we're seeing right now, of course, is that people are bringing up that is there now, we do now have both currency wars and trade wars. Mm. You know, there's trade tensions happening and people are putting tariffs on it. 
And at the same time, is it the case that some countries are trying to weaken their currency so that they get an advantage in international trade? So that's getting more attention right now. I mean, a couple of points to make is that while, while tariffs tend to be you know, one-sided decisions where a country decides to put a tariff, your currency movement you know, can be affected by what other countries do. So sometimes you can be inadvertently in a currency war, uh, even if your policies haven't changed, because the exchange rate by construction is a relative price that depends upon not just your policies, but everybody else's. So these things work very differently. And secondly, I think an important point to make is that sometimes people assume currencies and tariffs have the same features. That is that by using currencies, depreciating your currency, you get yourself more competitive in international markets. If you look at the data, there, is, there, is, you know, there are limits to how much that can be done. And mixing up currency wars and trade wars is a mistake. Right. And it's something which is certainly tossed around by the president. And you know, it's quite striking because we're sitting here talking on the 75th anniversary of the Bretton Woods, the founding of Bretton Woods, which is what the IMF came out of. And the IMF, you know, for many years had this incredible power or impact on the world stage. Not only did you go around telling emerging market economies how they should organize themselves and offering advice that's been modified since then in terms of capital flows and stuff, but, you know, when the IMF spoke, you could actually bang heads together. Do you think you still have that power as an organization? I, I think we do. Uh, I believe uh, it's still very much the case that uh, several of the issues that we've been thinking about for years with respect to capital flows, exchange rates, fiscal policy, all of those are, remain uh, crucial in the, in, the, in the world right now and are important. Uh, and we uh, still have the support of our membership uh, in, in continuing our, uh, our endeavors in terms of providing policy advice, in terms of uh, financial assistance. So I think we, we are, are, are doing quite well. Well, let's talk about a new issue that the IMF is looking at very closely, which is Libra and the announcement uh, that Facebook is looking to create this new cryptocurrency and coin. And I know that you know, people in Facebook have been talking to you for a long time about this, but, and obviously it's something you're looking at very closely because one of the things that's got lost in the discussions is that if this coin does get launched, um, it will, will be backed, it will be tethered to other existing currencies, what they call a stable coin. It won't be like Bitcoin. And that raises a host of questions about what happens to the reserves behind it. Do you see a role in the IMF in trying to craft or organize or trying to help develop those kind of global international cryptocurrencies? Because they really are cutting across different countries for the first time. And does it worry you that the way these plans are being drawn up? Um, so if I were to step back and just speak in terms of the big picture, uh, I mean, our view is that using uh, technology, fintech, to uh, increase financial inclusion is, is a welcome endeavor. I mean, that's something that we, we certainly need greater financial inclusion, and we should be doing that. But then, of course, the details of the particular fintech matter. Uh, and here, as an institution, I think our first role is also to, to understand where uh, you know, what are the different issues we need to think about, what, what can possibly get impacted by this. So, for instance, in the case of Libra, there is the uh, question of what it implies for monetary policy transmission. There's a question of what it implies for financial intermediation. So this is tied to the question you asked about when, 
when, the, when, when they get this, these uh, reserves, where, where are they going to store them? Are they going to store them at the central bank? Will that be allowed, or was it, is it going to be with the commercial banks? Uh, so those kinds of uh, answers to those kinds of questions will tell you how it's going to impact monetary policy. I mean, we also uh, uh, care about what this implies for currency substitution in other parts of the world where they have much l less stable currencies. So is, there, is this backdoor dollarization in some sense? So you could end up basically in an emerging market country that starts using Libra that's backed by dollars. Suddenly dollars take over everything. That, that is one possible uh, risk one needs to think about. And of course, you know, there are regulatory agencies that exist and they will, everybody is going to look at this very closely. Then, of course, there's issues of consumer protection. There's issues of uh, money laundering. I mean, there are many aspects to it. So again, uh, at this point, you know, one has to investigate very carefully uh, how, this, how these kinds of uh, coins will work. Uh, and this is particularly true because if you think of when is it that you can get a currency to get a lot of traction? You need strong network effects for that. And what Facebook has is that network. And so that's why I think it's even more important to, uh, to pay close attention to see exactly what the impact of this is going to be. And when you look at the currencies and how they're changing, I mean, one of the things was for many years, the IMF essentially went around the world telling emerging market countries that were in crisis, you know, take your medicine you know, you were like the headmaster or the taskmaster of the global economy. You went in there with these tough programs. You, imply, you know, imposed austerity. You often insisted on opening up the capital account, um, all these reforms. And yet, that's now changing a bit, isn't it? Do you think it's time for the IMF to start taking a more nuanced approach to the kind of policy recommendations it makes? I mean, the, the fund is already doing that. Uh, you mentioned uh, capital flows already, which is if you look at... It was indeed the case that in the past it was tell countries to liberalize the capital accounts, allow all kinds of capital to flow in. And now it's a far more uh, nuanced approach. Uh, there is a clear recognition that all kinds of capital flows don't necessarily benefit countries. Sometimes Some kinds of flows are hugely unstable in and out and create problems. So that is uh, an, important, uh, an important issue. Then on the fiscal side, uh, there's also been some changes. Uh, we are, we've now paid closer attention to the social impact of these kinds of fiscal recommendations, especially to the most vulnerable part of the population. So we want to make sure that some kinds of welfare schemes that are essential remain and don't get cut when, when countries are going through uh, their own reforms and their programs. Is that because you're trying to take a sort of slightly broader view of economics, do you think? I'm curious because, you know, the IMF used to be, it, people used to joke it's, sort of, it's mostly fiscal. It was all about absolutely orthodox economics. You'd go in there, you'd look at the numbers, you basically would just look at the numbers, impose a one-size-fits-all solution, and then go away again. Now you're talking about being more nuanced. Um, I haven't yet met, any, met anyone from the IMF who says they regret some of the earlier policies, but there's a kind of definitely a rethink going on. And someone like Christine Lagarde has started talking about things like the environment and women, which never used to be on the agenda at all. Is the IMF changing how it defines economics or what it thinks its role is to support the economy? The IMF is, is, is understanding much more deeply what are the factors that drive the macroeconomy and what are the factors that are macro-critical. I mean, I would put it that way which is that I think there's a clearer recognition of the fact that greater inequality affects the macroeconomy in terms of the plain bread and butter variables we care about, which is growth, inflation, productivity. 
we understand that climate makes a big difference. We understand that gender makes a big difference. So this is exactly why we are bringing in all these uh, other issues by basically recognizing that these are all macro-critical. Do you think the fact that you're a woman and Christine Lagarde is a woman has brought about a slightly more nuanced picture of economics? I don't know. I think I'd, I'd expect most men also these days would probably care about inequality and climate. Uh, I mean, I, I, this is always a hard question for me. I, I, I was trained as an economist. Uh, I, when I think about problems and issues, I don't necessarily think of myself as a woman thinking about these issues. So I don't know. But I mean, what was certainly true is that my own experiences obviously uh, define where I what you know, where I end up. So the fact that I grew up in an emerging market, I grew up in India, the fact that I was doing my bachelor's at a time when India was uh, going through an external account crisis, I mean, all of that has affected the issues that I work on and the issues that I care about. And I think all of this matters, I mean, besides me being a woman, but the fact that I'm from India, I mean, all of these things have an impact on how you think about the world. I mean, you are the first chief economist who's actually come from a country that's been, if you like, at the receiving end of... IMF-style advice, aren't you? Uh, well, there was, a, there was Raghuram Rajan before me, who was right. a chief economist uh, also, yes. Right. But yes, but that is a limited, uh, limited pool, indeed. Right, right. It's a bit like having a group of patients sitting on the board of a hospital um, instead of it having just run by the doctors. I think it makes a difference. I think it does, uh, uh, you know, when we think about policies and solutions, I think it is, helps to have the, have the patient in the room, too. And how easy has it been to be a woman in the field of economics? Because I was at the American Economic Association's annual meeting in January, and there was you know, a series of petitions, a lot of you know, discussion around the edges amongst a lot of female economists, um, particularly at the student and the postgraduate level, who are pretty angry about this feeling that it's tough to be a woman in economics today, that you know, there have been chat rooms in the economics um, industry about discrimination, um, you know, the numbers are pretty striking. Have you found it tough to be a woman in economics? So, so let me just agree with you that the numbers are really disappointing. Uh, I mean, it's one of those fields where in the last 10 years, if anything, you haven't seen any improvement. Uh, if you look at statistics like the number of uh, women in tenured positions in universities or the number of women doing PhDs. So, you know, that's unacceptable. Um, my, my own personal experience, I mean, it's one of those... Uh, uh, you know, I, I, was, I think I was partly lucky in the sense that I had advisors uh, who were exceptional. In fact, my advisor, Ben Bernanke, Ken Rogoff, Pierre-Olivier Gorincha, who were all incredibly supportive uh, of, of me. So that was wonderful. But you cannot miss the fact that when you are in an environment where you're just one of, like, 1% of the room or, you know, 5% of the room, uh, it has an impact on, on, on you and on, on your career. You know, there's always a sense of whether you get, do you get taken seriously enough? Um, and that's always, that's always an issue. Do you have the right network of people to work with? And that, and that comes up too. So I think it's very important to consciously work to change that. It's Aspen Ideas To Go. Thanks for listening. Former Speaker of the U.S. House Paul Ryan says President Trump has a good shot at getting reelected if the economy continues to perform. There's low inflation, fast economic growth, and rapid wage increases. 
So, even though Trump faces low approval ratings and scandals, he could get the most votes in 2020, says Ryan. We are now seeing the kind of wage growth and employment growth among middle-income um, Americans and lower-middle-income Americans that we have not seen in a long time. And that is, that is to the, to the, I think, to the testament of these policies we put in place, that's going to help the president greatly. Hear more from Paul Ryan on Aspen Ideas To Go. Find the episode, Paul Ryan Talks Trade, Immigration, and the 2020 Election on your podcast player and on our website, aspenideas.org. Let's get back to today's featured conversation. Here's Jillian Tett. Do you think that the Chinese expansion right now is durable? China grew at a very uh, fast pace about 10 to 15 years ago. And now, of course, it's slowing down, which it should, given that it's a far more mature economy at this point. It was it should grow at 10 12%, and now it's growing at around six. Uh, six, between six and six and a half percent. So we expect the growth to come down and, do, and, to, and to slow down. We expect it to move away from being an outward-looking economy, which is basically growing using international trade towards more internal domestic demand. Uh, the expectation is that it will be less credit-driven. There's been a big rise in credit in, in China, and there would be a switch away from just credit-driven booms. So the question, of course, is as... China slows down, is that going to happen gradually or is it going to happen with you know, a sharp fall? And so far, it's been a, a gradual slowing of the economy. Uh, that has implications for the world economy in terms of you know, demand for commodities and all those other features. Uh, but the ongoing tensions that we have, especially on the trade front, could make this much more precarious for China, which then, I mean, China is systemic at this point. It will have impacts for the rest of the world. Right. So what keeps you awake at night in terms of economics? <laughs> um, I, I mean, I believe it is, uh, you know, I, I am interested to see what's going to happen in the next couple of days with the G20. Uh, we, when, we, you know, when we prepare our economic outlook, we have to make assumptions there about the world, the world economy is headed. Those assumptions include, are there going to be tariffs between the U.S. and China? Uh, is there going to be deal with Brexit or not? Uh, and at this point, I think we're functioning in an incredibly uncertain environment about all of these assumptions. So some of that keeps me awake at night. When do you have to make the next set of assumptions? Uh, we have to or, do because we put these out uh, four times a year. We have to make. Right. Uh, so do you have sort out. of you know scenario A, B, C, D, E at the moment? I mean, because yes, we do. We have all the scenarios up, and we keep simulating all possible scenarios. So what is the gap in growth rates that you project? between a scenario where you actually have peace, love, and harmony break out of the G20 next week as opposed to a ghastly Brexit, full-blown U.S.-China trade war, um, and other protectionist problems? Okay, I can't tell you the answer to the, all the worst-case scenarios coming together, but um, I can give you one, which is we've run numbers for what happens if the U.S.-China tariffs were to expand to the 300 billion, so that would cover all of uh, U.S.'s imports from China and then retaliation from China. Uh, and that would reduce global uh, GDP by around half a percentage point in 2020. Right. So from about 35 to 3% in terms yes. of the projections. It would be a one-time uh, cut, yes. Right. Well, that's significant. Yes. Um, let's open up the questions. We've got some questions already um, in the audience. Please, could you give us your viewpoint on what's going on in India with the growth and the potential? 
this is something we are uh, studying and looking, uh, looking at. Uh, you know, there have been uh, improvements that India has done in terms of its uh, measurement. Uh, and, you know, right now it's around 7%, over 7% growth. So India is one of the countries that we uh, view as being important to long-run growth. And the reason I say that for the global economy, and the reason I say that is because if you look at advanced economies in the world, uh, it's not just their, their troubles right now, but it's their troubles going forward, which is that we, if you look at the long term with, with aging demographics and low productivity growth, uh, growth will slow down in most of these parts of the world. So to hold up global growth, it would have to come from a combination of growth in, uh, among other countries, but mainly, you know, importantly, in India and China. So you know, we, we pay very close attention to, those, uh, to India's growth. Do you feel more optimistic about India or China at the moment? Well, in both India and China are at different points in their growth cycle. China is, uh, has had far more years of very high-speed growth than India has. So India is, in that sense, more emerging than China is and therefore has far more potential uh, just going forward. Um, what do you think about modern monetary theory, and is it really possible that deficits don't matter? Uh, so, uh, so let's just start by saying, because Gillian said that you know, at the IMF we say everything is fiscal in the kind of the negative way. I'm just going to say it in, in one positive sense, that we do believe that fiscal policy is an important part of the toolkit for policymakers. So you know, uh, there are times and there are conditions under which fiscal policy uh, is used and, it, and it's valuable. Um, you know, MMT uh, is an idea that countries should be able to finance any amount of their deficits by printing money uh, and with the expectation that that's going to be costless. If you look at history and countries that have tried that, that has not been without cost. It has almost always been uh, inflationary and, and, and put countries in, in a crisis-like situation. Now, you could say that when we this time is different because we're having such a hard time getting uh, inflation, but we don't believe that's the case. I mean, the reason we're in this environment of, uh, of very stable inflation is because we put the monetary policy framework in place uh, to ensure that inflation stays where it is. And so, that, so that's a sense in which, while fiscal policy has a role to play, it certainly cannot be the one just simply runs very large deficits, does money financing, and has no costs associated with it. Will the IMF actually come out and say, we think MMT is nuts? We never use those words. Okay. <laughs> well, the equivalent, write a paper saying we do not think it's particularly credible. We've expressed our views uh, in the past. I mean, I, I've, I've expressed my views in the past within exactly the lines that I just said, which is that uh, fiscal policy has its benefits, but there are uh, limits to how much you can do with using money financing. Right. Well, actually, my question was going to be similar to that, although I'd like to extend that. Uh, uh, as you know, two months ago, U.S. government registered the highest deficit in its history on a monthly basis, and our debt are at $22 trillion and rising. That's not including all of the entitlement issues that we have and all, all of the other structural issues. So clearly, the uh, reason why we can't get away with it uh, on top of the cycle, actually, we're running this kind of deficit, 3.6% uh, unemployment, is because, in fact, our currency is, a, is, a, is really a, a global currency reserve, and therefore, so the question is, for how long uh, can we get away with that, in particularly 
in the face of, 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 of so, so much of extraterritorial actions we've taken, in particular with regard to sanctions and this and that, and in fact, um, most places around the world are thinking about some kind of alternative uh, currency as a way to get away from U.S. dollar-denominated system. So how long can this continue? Um, the U.S. dollar is certainly the dominant currency of the world. I mean, you can look at it in international trade. You can look at it in international finance. You can look at it in, in, in country central bank reserves. It dominates. Uh, if you look at the numbers, there's nothing in the numbers that makes you think that something is changing dramatically at this point. Uh, you know, I mean, on the contrary, the dollar has become more dominant in recent years, hasn't it? Because the euro has not lived up to its promise. So the dollar did, uh, did uh, gain more prominence in certain parts of the financial system uh, uh, as the euro lost some of it. Now, you see, you see the most recent report that has come out says the euro is gaining some more international uh, shares. But again, it's too early to say. So it, it, just as a snapshot, nothing in the data tells you that, uh, that there's a dramatic turnaround happening. You know, indeed, if countries feel uh, threatened with the fact that they don't have a similar dominant currency, if they feel that, they are, that uh, this is going to be problematic uh, going forward, then they might move in that direction. But, I mean, if you ask me my opinion, my sense is that it would take a whole lot more before you see a big change over here. And what about how long can the U.S. carry on with its debt, debt burden without sparking a crisis? So we flagged this in our uh, report. So we do the annual surveillance reports. Uh, and in our report for the U.S., we did mention that debt sustainability is something that they need to pay attention to. Now, of course, we are living in a time where there is a tremendous appetite for safe assets. The dollar is, is one of the safest assets. Uh, and, and so that gives a lot of cushion for, uh, for building up uh, debt and running deficits at this point. But again, to come back to the point I made previously, which is that it it, one has to recognize that there's a reason why the dollar has this status. It does because of a very well-run, independent central bank, uh, because of well-designed fiscal policies and global interaction. And so it, I think those factors have to, have to stay in place uh, for, the, for, you know, for this privilege to continue. Does the attack on the Fed's independence worry you? I mean, we really, I mean, it's hugely important. The independence of central banks are hugely important, the, especially the operational independence of central banks, which is about what interest rate to set, uh, is, is hugely important. And it has, it's, it's the reason why, you know, economies have been stable and well-functioning. And so we absolutely would want that to remain. We've got a question over here. Uh, yes, deal of fiscal policy. Um, um, well, one was a follow-up on the previous question. Do you see a recession coming in the United States uh, at a certain point? You're doing the economic outlook, so you must be studying there. And there is fear that within a year or two this will happen. And how will the U.S. deal with that without having the fiscal leverage of, for example, cutting taxes because they've been cut already and so on and so forth? And the other is related to this which is, as an economist, do you think that having a cap of 3% in the deficit um, uh, GDP uh, relationship, as the Maastricht Agreement uh, says, is wrong? So your question about uh, the outlook, 
again, in our baseline, we do not see uh, a recession either in 2019 or 2020. Uh, at the same time, we absolutely flag the downside risks. And uh, like I said, there are so many uncertainties about what's going to happen with very important policy measures uh, that that could change things going forward. But as of now, uh, we don't. What does happen if there is an actual recession? I think that is a very good question, and I think that's also what central bankers are thinking about. At this point, uh, the thinking is that it's so important to avoid a really bad outcome that you might want to do something you know, preemptive to prevent a, a, a tremendous weakening of the global economy, which is why you hear talk about maybe there will be a rate cut despite the fact that unemployment rate is so low and, and the U.S. economy is, is fairly strong. Um, so there is that sense in which we might want to put, this, put a rate cut in place now to prevent a, a really bad downturn, because the truth of the matter is many countries in the world do not have the monetary space to actually do enough if there were really a, a strong downturn, in which case fiscal policy would also be required. Uh, and again, that's again why we flag that there are some countries in the world that have the fiscal space, and we, we always point to Germany as one country that could certainly uh, uh, use its fiscal space more to raise potential growth. But then there are other countries for which uh, that is not the case. And so this is still a time for some of those countries to do fiscal uh, consolidation to keep, keep their finances in, in, in shape for that. Um, so that's where we are uh, with it. Uh, and you had, a, what was the other question you had about? 3% limit on Ah, yes. GDP. Yes, I mean, of course. That, yes, there is, there is more flexibility than this, that's just saying that it's 3%. There are escape clauses. There, are, there is a space to be able to, to move around that. So it's not as rigid as, uh, as, as one might uh, take. I mean, one of the points we've actually been flagging is that it would really help if these fiscal rules were simplified and were made more, more e easier to understand and more transparent because there is actually space there for, uh, for some adjustment. Um, should more be done? I think that's an important question, but I, I'm not going to go into that right now. What you're basically saying in the first points you made was essentially the global economy is pretty fragile in many countries, the recovery, and if they do go into downturn, they're out of options, they're out of ammunition. And therefore, they have to keep their foot to the pedal no matter what in terms of stimulus. I mean, that's quite a scary thought to put on the table. No, I don't want to leave with this scary thought. I think the, uh, what, I, what I want to just point out is that we live in a, in a time where the space for monetary policy is not that great. It's not 2008 space. It's much more limited. Uh, and so... I think there is the sense in which one has to be preemptive to prevent something from going bad. But the second point to make is that it cannot all just be monetary, which is what it is now, but it also will have to be fiscal policy being used. Right. Any more questions? And I do, by the way, want to touch on Europe. I'm curious to know, while the microphone is coming over, whether you think that Europe will have a recession. But um, let's ask your question first. What? I'd be curious in our answer to Europe. Okay. So you say that US will not have a recession this year or next. Do, are you projecting that Europe could have a recession? It's not soon? in our baseline. Not in your baseline. Is anywhere in your baseline with a recession right now? <laughs> there could be specific countries, but don't make me go into those. Well, I think we'd be quite curious to know about it, actually. <laughs> well, speaking of maybe, maybe Japan, uh, Japan has actually been pretty successful in structural reform. It, uh, the GDP doesn't grow very rapidly, only about 1% if they're lucky. 
but they have reduced their deficit from almost 7 to two, uh, less than 3% of GDP. What do you think about the outlook for Japan and their success, and will it continue in any hope that you could see stronger growth uh, or are their demographics still a big, a big headwind? I mean, so Japan does have structural uh, problems in demographics, low productivity. There still need, needs more to be done in terms of uh, women-female participation. I mean, those factors are, are hugely important. Uh, and, you know, in the absence of that, you can't see growth getting very high. But, I mean, those structural issues would, would, have, to be, would have to be fixed. I mean, that's a very interesting question. I'm curious. I mean, I say, when I, I was in Japan recently, um, and I go to Japan a lot, and it's the one country I know in the um, advanced industrialized world which appears to love robots. Um, the population isn't, you know, threatening to go out on strike or, you know, being wildly populist in response to robots. Um, I think partly because they realize they do have this labor shortage. And yes. to put it crudely, I think many parts of the Japanese voting base prefer robots to immigrants. Just have an orthogonal question, which is, how much do you think corruption, because I heard your comment about China, uh, India growing, how much do you think corruption reduces global growth? For what it's worth, I think part of the dollar is that we are the, the most sound, you know, in terms of security and, and review with all our problems of the currencies. I know, indeed, corruption is a very important issue, and uh, we actually recently put out a report on uh, corruption uh, our fiscal affairs department try to measure what would be the gains in terms of fiscal resources if one could reduce fisc uh, corruption, and it was a very large number, order one trillion. So it was a lot of money. Uh, and so yes, so this is something that we uh, we look into very carefully. It's something that we flag in our in our surveillance measures for certain countries. It is absolutely important. I mean, governance in general is is hugely important. Absolutely. Do you ever get countries saying, we just don't want you to study this aspect of economics? Um, uh, they might not be telling me that. Maybe they might tell somebody else that, but not me. <laughs> right. <laughs> Hi. Um, you said earlier that climate is one of the factors that you now recognize is a factor in uh, the macro economy. Could you explain a little bit why and why it's one of the two major factors you singled out? So we, we study climate uh, from many different angles. So the first is, of course, the natural disasters that we see around the world, uh, and they especially affect small, low-income countries, and the devastation can be tremendous, I mean, in terms of wiping out 25% of GDP. I mean, those, those are very big effects. So, so in this case, we do have to give, uh, we have to figure out how is a country going to recover from natural disasters of this kind. They obviously don't have the fiscal resources to be able to do that. Then there is, of course, uh, climate, uh, climate mitigation uh, that we need to think about, and we engage in, you know, what kinds of carbon pricing needs to be done. We engage in what kinds of in, uh, infrastructure spending needs to be incurred. And again, we care about it also from fiscal side because we are the monetary fund. Uh, which is about how our country is going to finance all this uh, expenditure that they require to adapt to climate change uh, and how much of this will need to come in the form of grants because otherwise it would be just put them on an unsustainable uh, trajectory. Uh, and so, so this, is, this is clearly important. It's also very important from a finance perspective. I mean, there are financial institutions who provide insurance, the impact on them, uh, there is stress testing of, of banks now that take into account the, their exposure to climate risk. 
So all of these masses directly play into our uh, global growth scenarios. If, you know, for instance, in 2018, the last quarter, the last two quarters, we uh, reduced growth for Japan, and that was because of the natural disasters in, J in Japan that came up uh, towards the end of the year. Uh, so these factors, weather-related, drought, I mean, all of these factors have been affecting our, our growth numbers, and we go into all the different directions on climate. Do you think you have enough data to be able to assess the issue of climate change on the economy? So this is going to be a combination of things. I mean, it's, there's a, some of it is data, but then a, a lot of it is also modeling because these are scenarios that we've not gone through yet, and we have to project about what can possibly happen. So there are some... You know, you have to make conjectures and simulate uh, outcomes. Uh, but yes, uh, but there are some very concrete questions that we can ask about what, how is debt sustainability in, in some countries impacted, countries that are going to be very highly subject to climate shocks. Uh, and, and so, yes, yeah, so those are the kinds of things we do. We have an enormous spread between U.S. interest rates and uh, European interest rates. The U.S. economy is growing at a faster rate than uh, the euro area is, uh, and that's an important source of the difference. If you see the, the recovery from the global financial crisis that came around faster in the U.S. relative to the euro area. So in the U.S., we've been, uh, we had you know, the closing of the gaps. Of, sorry, the, the fact that there's been uh, the decline in unemployment has come around much more dramatically. The fiscal policy stimulus has raised spending. So all of this, we're talking about growth rates of 3% in the U.S. compared to, you know, like 1, 1, 1 1.5% in the euro area. And so it's natural. You would expect monetary policy to have very different uh, interest rates in the two, in the two uh, countries. Do you see, I mean, you know, President Trump has said that 4% growth is entirely attainable um, as a sort of long-term average. Do you think that's realistic, or do you think that the U.S. is basically stuck around 2 to 3%? The, uh, the policies that have been, have been put in place or the policies that have been announced so far, none of those policies we think is going to get the economy to 4%. Now, if there is a wholly different uh, you know, structural policy chain that's made that raises productivity tremendously in the U.S., because that's what is needed, is to raise productivity in the U.S., uh, then maybe, but not in, the, not in what we're seeing right now. So I was going to save this for the last question, a question of great personal interest, which is, what about the UK? Have you modelled out what happens with a hard Brexit, soft Brexit, no Brexit, whatever Brexit? Actually, we have. We have modelled out. We have simulated all... All, all possible variants of Brexit. All possible variants of it. Uh, and we have we put it out in our World Economic Outlook in April, the different possible scenarios. Right now, in our baseline, in the numbers that we are, we are putting in for global growth, our assumption is that there will be a deal that the UK will continue to be in a free trade area with the, with the EU, uh, and there will be a smooth transition. That's your assumption? That's the baseline. That's Great, the I hope baseline. you're right. <laughs> Terrific. And so under that scenario, the UK continues to grow a bit, or do you see a recession in the, U in the UK? No, that, if, that, if under that assumption, the UK continues to grow, yes. So what happens if there isn't a smooth deal? So, so in the worst-case scenario, what we've simulated, when there is no deal, there are non-tariff barriers being put up. So the problem with, with Brexit is not so much the fact that if you, 
you know, if you go out to the free trade area, you could then go into uh, uh, most favored nation tariffs, which is about 4% tariff rate. So it's not very big. The bigger issue is the non-tariff barriers, the fact that you have to put checkpoints and you have to do uh, the logistics of it is, is the bit more disruptive feature. If you take all of those factors into account, there can be a short, in the very short run, there could be a recession in, uh, in the UK if there were a complete breakdown, no deal Brexit. With, uh, so that is in your baseline? Not, yes, not in, not in the baseline. Not in the baseline. Our baseline okay. assumes that there will be a deal and it will be uh, a smooth transition. But right. if, it was, if the worst case scenario happens in that case, uh, the, the, if you take what's, what would happen in that case, there would be a recession, yes. Well, all I can say is I jolly well hope your baselines are correct. <laughs> I love your baselines. Um, but, I mean, it's been a fascinating discussion. Thank you. Um, you know, the world is pretty uncertain at the moment. There, as you say, there's a very wide spectrum of things that could impact it right now. Um, and it's going to be fascinating to see what comes out of the G20 meetings. Um, I truly hope that your predictions are correct. Um, but in the meantime, it's probably pretty reassuring to many of us to know that there are cool heads trying to make sense of what's going on. And perhaps more importantly, still trying to take a slightly wider view of what economics is um, in the 21st century. So best of luck and thank you. Thank you. Gita Gopinath is the IMF's 11th chief economist and the first woman to hold the position. She's a professor of international studies and economics at Harvard. Jillian Tett leads editorial operations in the U.S. for the Financial Times. She also writes a weekly column and chairs the paper's editorial board. Their conversation was held at the Aspen Ideas Festival on June 27, 2019. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Listen on our website, aspenideas.org, and sign up for our newsletter at aspenideas.org. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Ideas Festival programming team is Kitty Boone, Killeen Bretman, Katie Cassetta, Libby Franklin, Brett Howley, Jonathan Melgard, Jamie Miller, and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.